Hello and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, episode 55, John 6 and 7 in A Clash of Kings. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as at Lies and Arbor or from liesandarborgold.com. And I'm another one of your hosts, Eliana. You probably know me as Glass Table Girl on Reddit, on the Mason Monthly Podcast, or as Arithmetric over on Twitter. You guys, I'm very excited. <laughs> about what? There's so many things to chapter. be excited about. There's a lot of exciting <sighs> There's things. There's so much happening all the time. We are just having an exciting life. I'm most excited about this chapter, though, right now. Like, the next two chapters, John 6 and John 7. Oh, they're so good. There's so much packed in these two little chapters. Yes. I mean, there was a lot packed in those last two chapters. And then in this one, uh, things are just getting ramped up for John's storyline, you know? It turns out I love John. <laughs> I'm sorry. I fooled you all. <laughs> So John is in the Skirling Pass, or the Skyling Pass. We got a lot of really great tweets from people <laughs> with uh, various band names, ska band names. Some of the really great ones that we got, you know, it was kicked off by Clint of the Laughing Tree, or Real Big Blackfish, less than Jockin. That one's great. Uh, <laughs> I really loved Reek and Pickle and the Voodoo Glow, sc- Glow Skulls and Kisses. We got Mighty Mighty Brontones. That one's very good. That's like a very good pun. That's top tier yes. level pun. Um, all that one came from Topher Lundell. This one is also top tier from Bruno Marzipan, aka Crystal Pepsi. Two, <laughs> these are two different kinds of sweets, so I'm fascinated by this. It is Mansell Crashers. Oh my god! And it works on oh many levels. So so. Good. Everyone, uh, check out this thread from Clint of the Laughing Tree and everyone else's replies afterwards because they're amazing. I'm glad someone made that happen for me. <laughs> and you. And everyone. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'm really excited about His Dar Materials, <laughs> the new series that we're doing. Yes. <laughs> so, everyone, again, we are we announced last week our second series that we are going to be starting in July the His Dark Material series, the first book, since people seem to be a little confused, and I can understand why, because it has two different titles in the way that the first Harry Potter book had two different titles, but only one word was changed. These are completely different titles, right? So the first book of the His Dark Material series is called Northern Lights, if you're in the UK or maybe other countries in the world that are not the US. And if you're in the US, the publisher entitled it The Golden Compass. So... Mm -hmm. We're going to be starting that, and what we're hoping to do is get through just the first book before the television series begins in late 2019. It hasn't been announced yet, and we are going to switch over after finishing the first book to covering the television series, and we'll put out episodes, you know, as those episodes air. Yeah, but first we're going to stick to the first book to the Golden Compass. We'll probably do two to four chapters, depending per episode, and we're looking at doing this monthly to start. Maybe it'll increase, maybe not. We'll kind of go with the flow and see how you guys deal with all the content. And I think what we're looking for in terms of starting this reread is, we said July, we're looking probably somewhere in late July. We want to you know, prep and and make sure that we're giving you the same sort of in-depth analysis that we give you for A Song of Ice and Fire. We're coming at this a little differently. This is new territory for a lot of you and for some of us here. And 
obviously we're reading this colored a little bit by our experiences with the song of ice and fire but it's a completely different book series right it's covering different things so we want to give it the space it it deserves to breathe but also, while I have you guys here, there are already so many awesome themes in it. And also, Lyra is such a little badass. She's so Arya. No spoilers. Read the books. Um, I think anyways, it's pretty obvious from the beginning. Them. I don't think it's a spoiler. And I think that's why, you know, when I first started A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones, you know, I'm, I'm used to those kinds of protagonists. I think that's part of why I was so drawn to Arya when I first started the series, right? We're excited that a lot of you are excited to start this with us. One of the people who said that they're very excited is the Faceless Maester, a.k.a. Maester Mary, on Twitter. Uh, Mary recently wrote an essay. Uh, there have been so many good pieces that have come out around the end of the show and, of course, from the books lately. Uh, Eliana is one of these people who has written that fabulous essay about Daenerys Targaryen that I will talk about until the day I die. Technically came out before the end of the show. But Mary has written an awesome essay that is about John's sense of duty and familial allegiance and how it always will come before the vows that he's made, that he doesn't place a very high value on his perceived honor in anyone else's eyes. And it asks a ton of great questions. It's a really good companion in analyzing John's arc. We will link it in the details because I really want you guys to take a minute to read it. And of course, this is only part one of her essay series. She'll be covering more and gives a, a sort of overview of what she's going to be talking about in her essay. So, you know, get in, read this essay, and stay tuned for whatever else she's putting out. Yeah, the series is called The Last Temptation of Lord Commander Snow, Part 1, Killing the Boy. Uh, it's available on her WordPress, up from under winterfell.wordpress.com, so make sure to check it out. Along with that, we also got this email from Warren, or Quarren, as he said <laughs> on Twitter, uh, since you know Corin half hands in these in these episodes that were Corin uh, emailed us about a story of some Irish folklore. Yeah, he emailed us about some Celtic lore, the story of Tirdanoish, and he says the story that rings truest to me in John's arc as he goes ranging with his Night's Watch brothers, joins Corin and his brave band before defecting to the wildlings and returning to the Wall is the tale of Ternanoj. Fionn Makul comes across a princess from Ternanoj, the land of youth, while out with his friends from the Fianna, Celtic warriors. She tells him she wants to marry his son, Oisin, which is Irish for young, and ultimately Oisin decides he will marry her, and he goes to Ternanoj. After a time, he misses his father and friends from Na Fianna and petitions to return home to Ireland. His wish is granted, but he's warned not to set foot on the soil. He meets some farmers who tell him his father and friends are long dead, and he's distraught, dismounting to help the farmer shift a boulder. It might have been a cart, either. He ages dramatically and cannot return to his wife in Ternanoj. Warren says he's often taken with the similarities in this tale and John's time beyond the wall. It's not identical, but I really sense the presence of the influence. Similarly, there are elements of this story influencing Bran's quest north with Mira, Jojen, Hodor, and Summer. Yeah, I really like the this uh comparison i think you can see a lot of those similar ideas in john's storyline like how he has to choose between two different sides of himself of the wall and of his his two families and in the end it seems like he kind of gets nothing which is really sad he gets a little bit right but um ultimately the choices that he makes means that he loses something so i think that's a really really interesting tie 
I think there's a lot that people would see this in his ending in the show, whether that is going to be his ending in the books, which I'm 100% sure it is because George R. R. Martin literally said it's going to have the same ending as his would. It's very much incorporated in these, these next chapters in the Bale the Bard story as well. Uh, also in John's birth story, which echoes Bale the Bard, correct? That's pretty pretty agreed on that Bale the Bard's story is like Egret looking at John and saying, hey, this is your birth story, idiot. Your mom wasn't just some woman. Uh, and it talks a lot about Rhaegar and Lyanna's choice, like whether this was for prophecy or for love, what they did running off, having John in secret. That's kind of similar with those elements of choice that you speak about. And it all kind of files in with that prophetic last hero storyline. And Bran has the last hero storyline as well. While we bring that subject up, you know, they go north of the wall and they seek the truth. Yes. Yeah, that that seems to be the thing. <laughs> Everyone dies. You come back and everyone's dead. Yay. Thank you, Warren, for sending in that email. And let's get into it. You know, Chloe kicked us off a little with discussing Bale the Bard, which we're going to go into in this episode. But first, let's do our lightning round. Tyrion 10. Tyrion has Tommen kidnapped. Hits Shay. Boo. And chats Boo. about where Varys' junk went. Oh, and he thinks about killing his sister again. He's a... Good guy, trademark. Uh, Catelyn 6. The Starks continue to win in the Riverlands, but Catelyn still feels anxiety and feels like they're losing. Brand 6. Theon Greyjoy takes Winterfell. Arya 9. Arya frees the 100 Northmen prisoners at Harrenhal with Jacken and begins to serve Reese Bolton. Daenerys 4. Daenerys enters the House of the Undying. Tyrion 11. Tyrion takes time to organize the city's defense while Stannis draws near. Theon 4. Theon hunts for the escapees, escape <laughs> of Winterfell. Uh, these are Bran, Rick, and Mira, Jojen, Osha, Hodor, and of course Summer, in case you all need to remember. And he employs the help of a man named Dory of Reek oh to God. help. <laughs> this leads us into John 6. <laughs> In which John is moving through the Skirling Pass with Corin Halfhand and his crew and comes across several wildlings, but also a spearwife named Egret. Egret tells John the story of Bale the Bard, and he finds himself unable to kill her. And so begins John 6 with Squire Dalbridge watching um, the Watchers in the above Skirling Pass, and the fire is burning harder. Squire Dalbridge is the oldest among all of them, and he had actually been a squire to a king allegedly Jaehaerys II, according to the World of Ice and Fire. Fire is life up here, said Corrin Halfhand, but it can be death as well. By his command, they'd risked no open flames since entering the mountains. They ate cold salt beef, hard bread, and harder cheese, and slept clothed and huddled beneath a pile of cloaks and furs, grateful for each other's warmth. It made John remember cold nights long ago at Winterfell, when he'd shared a bed with his brothers, these men were brothers, too, though the bed they shared was stone and earth. They'll have a horn, said Stone Snake. The half-hand said, a horn they must not blow. Yeah, so, first of all, I want to say hard bread and hard cheese are not fun to eat. Mm -mm. As someone who's tried to do that myself, sometimes I try and rehydrate my bread. It's like 50-50 chance. Um, I've never thought, you know, before about how close the Night's Watchmen get, and that they would share a bed with one another like this beneath the cloaks and furs I think really adds a little something to what we're going to talk about later on with Mance and Corin. But regarding these fires, right, 
it's kind of a catch-22 for everyone north of the wall, because, like, Mance obviously fears the Whites and the others, right? Which is probably the same for the other Free Folk, and that's why they're lighting a fire. They're risking being seen by the Night's Watch because they need to have a fire if they're going to keep the others away. Mm-hmm. I kind of just like this line from Cornhaffen talking about the horn that the these Watchers have, saying, a horn that they must not blow. The whole idea of them sleeping together under these cloaks and furs is just what Jor has been trying to teach John that like it's a matter of life and death that these are your brothers. When you're north of the wall on a ranging, that warmth mm-hmm. is whether you live or die. That, those are the brothers that have your back when you come under attack by wildlings. Such an mm-hmm. interesting conversation to have about that bond, especially with what's coming with Corin Halfhand. They're family, so desertion, anything, it's... It's very personal. Yeah, I wish I could do that to my friends. Like, you desert me. Pyre. (laughs) What? (laughs) Uh, Don't burn bridges. Burn your friends. Anyways, whoa. Whoa. got dark. Girls got cannon. Okay, anyways. Eben thinks it's a long, cruel climb, and Corrin says it's also a longer fall. But I'm going to throw this out there. It's actually shorter when you fall. Yeah, anyways. No matter what, you fucking idiot. (laughs) Jesus. Corrin, you idiot. It's so much faster. Gravity. Uh, Corrin knows a lot. Anyways, he gets to reach his own watchers, and uh, Stone Snake is one of them. He's ready for the climb, and so is John. Yeah, Ghost stays with Corin so that Ghost isn't spotted because fur in the moonlight is more obvious. And John goes off with Stone Snake and his crew. So this is something I didn't realize until today. The show definitely did this differently in that Corin doesn't go with them in the books. Uh, but in the show, Corin goes with them. Obviously, he's the lead character in this little side plot. So I get it. I'm not like mad about it. But I just thought it was interesting because there's a lot more implication of having Corin not see what John goes through away from there. Mm. Interesting. The ground is super uneven, so John has to be super careful. Uh, Stone Snake knows the ground by heart, but John is kind of, you know, trying to keep up. The wind cut like a knife up here and shrilled in the night like a mother mourning her slain children. What few trees they saw were stunted, grotesque things growing sideways out of cracks and fissures. Tumbled shelves of rock often overhung the trail, fringed with hanging icicles that looked like long white teeth from a distance. I think that's a huge shout to Catelyn right there. A mother mourning Mm -hmm. her slain children. Uh, This is, everything's happening, right? This is the end of Clash of Kings. Bran and Rickon have been declared dead soon, you know, right around this Mm -hmm. time, pretty much. Uh, Right after this is when Theon and Reek kind of, you know, burn those kids and everyone thinks it's Rickon and Bran. So mother mourning her slain children really beautiful setup this is when everything is happening in clash yes it's it's interesting that it's also here north of the wall that we start getting some of that language that points towards that because obviously it's not happening anymore at this point in the story but you know in the 93 letter originally catelyn was supposed to go north of the wall with with her children yeah so and die there it's some it's some interesting stuff that George is pointing to it here. Um, I I also like that you called out how the ground is uneven and John has to be careful and obviously you know some of this climb you know now John's an experienced climber for like the next time we have to do this shit right but that's uh, this is a coming of age story right John doesn't know the ground as well as Stone Snake and he does and that's the difference between a man of the Night's Watch and just being a recruit. Yeah. 
And then John, of course, sees many wonders during his climb and ascent. He sees icy thin waterfalls over sheer stone cliffs, autumn wildflowers across a meadow, blue cold snaps and scarlet frost fires, and piper's grass in russet and gold. I just had to call that out because it's such a beautiful paragraph. The language is beautiful. George does a great job with that world building of what it looks like north of the wall and where that magic comes in and that there's not a ton of color, but there is some color in this wildlife very very lightly peppered in like if we were watching bob ross if we were watching bob ross you know this is him bringing a little color into the world just painting just a little flowers and a little cabin you know just uh just real calm painting it last episode you mentioned we don't hear the night's watch uh really talk about the comet too much we only hear them think about it here and there john sees it here and there and says something about it but we don't hear them declare sides for it However, when they're north of the wall, the wildlings' frost fire that lingers above them is kind of like their own comet. That is their version of the comet. Hmm. That's their signifier that those frost fires signify that they need to defeat these wildlings. Yes, and I love how you're you're seeing like the this changing of the seasons through the plants as a way of heralding that. John then watches a shadow cat stalk a ram, and he thinks he must be like the shadow cat here, like liquid smoke. He wonders who will be the ram and who will be the shadow cat in their chase against the wildlings. Very Arya-esque, right? Swift as a deer, quiet as a shadow, fear cuts deeper than swords, you know, fierce as a wolverine, from her, just her entire Game of Thrones repetition. Yes. The ascent is really rough, going up the wall, and Frost has begun sticking to John's recently acquired facial hair. From, you know, not shaving. That's called out. And I'm like, oh my god, this is such a teenage point to think about. Mm, my peach fuzz is getting frozen. His little peach I'm fuzz. finally growing a stash. Yeah. <laughs> growing up on the wall. MTV True Life. <laughs> One step and then another, John told himself. One step and then another, and I will not fall. This reminds me of Maya Stone leading Cat up in the Eerie and also uh, Sansa's ascent in the Eerie. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I didn't think of that in um, that connection. For me, when I saw the that language of the one step and then another, one step and then another, that's very much like those motifs that uh, Jeremy brought up in that email that we talked about Sam. last episode. Yeah, it reminds me of Sam and the way that recurs in Sam's first Storm chapter, where for him, though, the line that is repeated is sobbing Sam took another step. And that's what ties all of that together. And in John, it's that mm -hmm. one step and then another, one step and then another, and I will not fall. I do like it because it brings back that idea of rhythm that you've always talked about so often and that we've been talking about a lot in the last couple chapters of how John is one step and then mm -hmm. another and Sam is Sam took another step and it's definitely on different rhythms, right? Yeah. And it reminds me of that idea of needing to go forward and what it means to have to grow up, right? Danny's story, she always thinks about how she has to also go forward. And in a way, John hasn't had to deal with trauma in the same way yet in this chapter, but Sam will when those lines occur. And I think it's their coping mechanism for that point in time that the only way they can live is they have to go forward because they're going to break if they look back. Yeah, and we're going to see a lot of that in the next chapter, and we'll talk about that towards the end of the chapter, but this really is John's first time as a soldier mm -hmm. north of the wall. At the end of last episode, right, he very quickly volunteers, and J.R. Mormont knew that John was going to do that, right? Because John's been longing for this adventure, he's been longing to be a hero in the songs, he's going to find it's not everything that he thought it was going to be, and I wonder to an extent... Um, 
that motivated him to initially almost desert right to join robin his army like for him he thought that was a noble cause that he would join in the songs fighting alongside getting vengeance for his family but this is a way of doing it too and he's gonna find that there's different kinds of truths in songs yeah and it is a lot of truth seeking where sansa had to find that you know the songs aren't always real john is learning that on his own way as well and more than that it's this whole entire time john is trying to prove himself as a stark as a man he's trying to prove himself as ned's son this entire journey when he literally took a vow where he's supposed to forget that you kind of see where that stark contrast ha uh starts to really build and how when he thinks of he's doing the right thing he really is doing it for an entire other reason and that's the problem it's not that he's not doing the right thing it's that he's not doing it for the right yeah, reason. yeah and he's no one else on the fucking Night's Watch gives a shit if he proves himself a Stark son or not, right? Because they're like, mm, you're a part of the Night's Watch now, dude. He's mm-hmm. doing it and trying to prove that he's Ned's son to himself. And he's always thinking it to himself. He wasn't his dad, but he was his daddy. But Rhaegar is his dad. That's the, the bitter, dramatic irony of it all. Rhaegar is actually his dad. He's trying to prove himself to be this man that wasn't even his father. And that's where his identity spins out of control in the very end. That's where we're going to find him probably in A Dream of Spring or in The Winds of Winter. Yeah, trying to understand what fatherhood means. But along with his parents, the mountain is your mother, Stone Snake had told him during an easier climb a few days past. Cling to her, press your face up against her teats, and she won't drop you. John had made a joke of it. Typical teenager things. I would have done that. Seeing how he'd always wondered who his mother was, but never thought to find her in the Frost Fangs. It did not seem nearly so amusing now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's treacherous up there. They, it, it's crazy for the beauty of the environment, what we just read of how beautiful it was and all the little autumn flowers and all of the ice along the way and how it looks like glass, basically. Not all that glitters is gold. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot of that line from Maya Stone in Elaine 2 in A Feast for Crows that a mountain is not a man and a stone is a mountain's daughter. Uh, It's the whole entire passage where she talks about parenthood. Uh So again, this is coming right back into that with Robert Baratheon as her father and how, you know, one day he just stopped coming. Yeah, and that is interesting because you're seeing through Maya Stone that she's struggling with this sort of fate of bastardy herself, right? We didn't really dig into it as much, but John's experience isn't necessarily unique to him. Mm. And it's unique in how his life is and who he is, of course, right? But it's shared by a lot of these other great bastards. And I'm sure Edric Storm probably feels, well, Edric Storm knows who his dad is, but Maya Stone obviously feels this, especially with that abandonment. And John's father did not abandon him, but he doesn't know what happened to his mother. Nonsensical aside, and Chloe's gonna, whatever. West Virginia Mountain Mama, take me home, Frostfang Road. Okay, so... Speaking of roads at the end of a row. <laughs> Go on, Eliana. I want you to continue what you were at going to say At the end of the road, now. they're at the end of a very narrow track, and John must follow. Stone Snakes moves very closely and carefully. And then John remembers Stone Snakes' advice never to look down, and he just keeps going. Although, you know, he slips here and there and even rips open his thumbnail. Yeah, he's leaving blood on the rocks, which is gross, but also like a trail of where he's been. And it's very much so like what you just said above, that if I look back, I am lost. It is that repetition of that line, and John knows that if he looks down, he's lost. Yeah, and of course, a lot of that is against the backdrop of him remembering, oh yeah, uh, I had a brother who was actually really good at climbing and he fell. (laughs) Uh Yeah. 
yeah, he's thinking of his courage and he's trying to draw from it, which is really sweet. Uh, it reminds me of, you know, Sansa always thinking of Rob and saying, like, I must be brave like Rob and Arya thinking of her family as well. Yes. Stone Snake pulls John up and they crawl 300 yards to watch the wildlings at their fire. They were only planning for two, but there are three wildlings there. One has a horn to warn of enemies coming, and one John can't see anything but, quote, his bright red hair, quote, as he is fast asleep in his skins, and another sits at the fire speaking with the horn bearer. Stone Snake gestures quietly at the wildling with the horn, and John agrees. They have marked him for death. John thinks, Did Rob feel this way before his first battle? And it's exactly like what you were just saying of how Sansa thinks of Rob and draws strength, and John does this, of course. We've seen many times throughout his chapter. He's like, is this what Rob feels like? And yeah, they draw John can be a dragon as much as people say he is. He can be as Targaryen as he wants, but he draws his strength from Winterfell just like they do from the old yes. gods. Well, I mean, I think that's a big thing in Song of Ice and Fire, right? Sure, it's not the case for everyone, but the brothers, they keep each other alive and warm. People draw a lot of their strength from other people. We're all connected. Mm-hmm. Oh, god damn. <laughs> I think it relays that idea of choice and choosing, you know, choosing between the ice and the fire. And fire consumes, ice preserves. In the show, even, has given Theon choice, right? Yeah. He says, you can be both. You know, you can embrace both. But John wants to not, he wants to choose. You know, he wants to be Stark. He's always wanted to be Stark. And he this can be like water, from that. you know, he can be both. Mold himself to the cup of mm-hmm. either... Mm, like in Pokemon, where, like, there's all the orbs. Oh in my the god, Lugia you're right. Uh, the, power of th- the power of three, and there are mm-hmm. three wildlings here. We did it. We connected it. Wow. The dragon has three heads. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so Stone Snake leaps down on the wildlings, bringing pebbles with him and kind of relishing keeping that name alive. And John unsheaths his sword, Longclaw, following suit, and it all happens at once. Stone Snake kills the man with the horn and knocks the horn aside before he can blow it. John admires his courage at trying and failing to blow the horn before dying, though, which I really respect. We as readers are supposed to as well, because, I mean, Corrin says as much regarding wildlings being the same as the people south of the wall later on, and the same as the Night's Watch, you know, that they're all human. But for this man to reach for his horn first, like, that's indicative of something that's explored in this chapter and John's next one. I mean, his whole fucking storyline, right? Whatever. Duty. Like, in reaching for the horn first, this wildling, through his actions, the story tells us that this nameless dead man put his duty, I think we get his name later on, whatever, um, to his fellow people before his own survival. If he could just get that one blast out, that could make all the difference of, like, life and death for all of these wildlings. I mean, horns in the story, right? We talked about it extensively last episode. Should it be Jormans that brings down the wall? It's a, a note that's a little flipped on its head. That single blast is all that separates life and death. Yes, great points about Jorben's horn, especially with that line earlier that they can't blow that horn. If that's the horn that brings down the wall, they're screwed. They're stuck on the opposite side with all the dead. Yeah, but they're willing to make that risk, right? If all of them will live. They're like, fuck everyone down there. Yeah. Sacrifice is a huge theme in these coming chapters. John comes down on the man at the fire, but his sword is jerked out of his hands at the kill. He goes to grab it back, and he's ready to kill the red-haired man, but as the point is at the wildling's neck, he realizes it's not a man. It's a woman. A girl, even. No older than he is. John could see fear and fire in her eyes. Blood ran down her white throat from where the point of his dirk had pricked her. One thrust and it's done. 
he told himself. He was so close he could smell onion on her breath. She is no older than I am. Something about her made him think of Arya, though they look nothing at all alike. Will you yield? He asked, giving the jerk a half-turn. And if she doesn't? The girl yields, though. And John takes her as their captive against Stone Snake's wishes. Stone Snake argues that Corin didn't say anything about taking captives, and that the spearwife was going to kill him had he given her a second more with that axe right there. John says, I'll be watchful of her, she won't get a chance, and he asks her her name and then gives her his own, which she says is an evil name. Speaking of fairy stories, right, uh, in those emails, this mm-hmm. is such an interesting thing that Egret demands John's name back, and then it says that it's an evil name. I And I don't think in A Song of Ice and Fire, I mean, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but we haven't really seen that same sort of idea of if you have someone's true name or something, right, mm-hmm. you can control them. But names are important within the story it does kind of remind me of the ghost of high heart a little bit here when she meets mm-hmm. Arya and she says be gone child you know dark heart uh mm-hmm. in a way it's almost like that it does have that like slight prophetic you know that's what you'd expect that's a woods witch and the wildlings are wildlings right savages from the woods <laughs> and they have their superstitions right like it, for her to say Jon snow is an evil name. Maybe it's more gray than that, you know? I was gonna say some people might interpret some of his actions later on. As Mary points out in her essay, it's just some of the things he does are very ambiguous. So, I, John's obviously not evil. We're not saying that. But the wildlings' enemies have been Starks and Stark bastards and bastards of the North forever, though. Bastards of the North that get sent to the Wall. Oh, interesting. I was thinking it had to do with Snow being his last name, especially because the winter has been bringing death for all of them. Hmm, it has made life it. hard for them. Yeah. I mean, it's all their enemy. That's all their enemy. Yeah. Egret ominously tells them they should burn the bodies of the men they killed, but Stone Snake is suspicious and he thinks that's exactly what she wants them to do to signal the other wildlings. We, the audience, are like, um, no, they just come back to life and then kill you. They'd kill you dead. Egret's not trying to signal the other wildlings. She's being pretty fucking practical here. And John's like, mm, yeah, let's do that. Because somehow I, in these rangings, many of the other Night's Watch haven't seen the whites or the others, or it's just like the ones who have don't really survive except for Garrod. And I don't know. It makes me wonder if like the whites and the others are trying to avoid being seen by the Night's Watch for the most part. Yeah. Right? I mean, are, were they just trying to plot things in secret and maybe they decided, you know, we're bored. Let's send Othar and Jafer or whatever. Well, and I, I guess maybe that was to signal a message or send a message now as well, but especially since we just keep hearing the numbers are dwindling in the Night's Watch. Before the Night's Watch was formidable, they were the watchers on the wall. You know, they were the shields that guarded the realms of men. And the the others haven't had to come back. Like, this has become from the wildlings, which is the wrong fight. The others are the true fight, the true attack, right? And they have not come in a thousand years, you know, since the last, the long night. Yeah. I, it, why were they not given a bigger briefing on this? I don't know. And why does, of course, the most junior member is the only one that, like, gives a shit? John. Yeah. But so it goes. Yeah. Stone Snake says that there are other ways uh, to deal with the bodies, and so they haul the men off the pass together and throw them off the cliff. But they're coming back, you know? Like, what is dead may never die? Yeah, I mean, like, for this to have been effective, they would have had to, like, really, really splattered very hard and basically been turned into a jam, and I don't think that that was the case. 
No, I think you're correct there. They begin to question Egret, and they ask what awaits them beyond the pass, and she says more free folk. John kind of realizes from the way that she speaks, she doesn't actually know how many free folk are there. She says hundreds and thousands, more than they've ever seen. She won't tell them why they're in the Frostfangs. She falls silent, staring in the fire. And when asked about them marching on the wall and John's Uncle Benjamin, she stays silent, and she just stares into the flames. Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure Egret just doesn't know how many of them there are. She's not trained in me, like, knowing the difference between hundreds and thousands. Um, and she probably doesn't know what happened to Benjamin either, but it's cool that she makes him think she might. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like, I'm just here. She's not gonna say job. shit. Good for her. Good yeah. for her. What right do they have? <laughs> They're the ones that came north. She lives there. Yeah. <laughs> this is her home. A shadow cat comes, and John draws his sword, but Egret tells him he's ridiculous, and <laughs> the cats are going to eat the flesh of the men and their bone marrow all night. This is, in fact, preferable to becoming zombies. Throwing this out there. Yeah, agreed. John asks if those they killed were her kin. Egret says no more than John or Stone Snake are. He doesn't understand, and she says he's the bastard of Winterfell, and she asks him who his mother was, and he says some woman most of them are. Someone had told him that, which we know is Tyrion. Egret can't believe that whoever his mother was had never sung him the song of the Winter Rose. And this is so heavy-handed, but I love it. It is, of course, the story of Bale the Bard. Yes. Also, when the did he not explain this? When the hell was his mother going to sing him this? Anyways. Right. Duh. Come on, Egret, you fucking idiot. I love you, though. Be, fuck- be fucking sensitive, Egret. Christ. Egret yeah, teases him, uh, calling anyone who is... From below the wall, right? A southerner. And telling him, you're probably not going to like this story. Just nagging him about it. But she eventually tells it all the same. Before, Bale was king of the free folk. And he was a raider. Stone Snake, though, calls him a raper and a murderer. But Egret says that's up to perspective. Okay, is this exact meta commentary about Rhaegar or not, though? Airhorns. Airhorns. It's literally about Rhaegar. Oh, he's a rapist and a murderer. Okay, well, that's up to your point of view, I guess. (laughs) <laughs> Which is what George is trying to say, I guess. What else? Uh, the Starks at the time wanted to capture Bale, but they couldn't, and bitterly called Bale a craven to those who would listen. The word got back to Bale, and he was like, fuck that shit, and wanted to teach the Starks a lesson. So he comes in, he demands a rap battle, and by that he doesn't <laughs> actually, he, well, kinda, because he's a bard. Anyways, he came south, passed the wall, and entered Winterfell with a harp in hand. And he named him, he called himself, though, Sidric of Skagos, or Deceiver, in the Old Tongue. And interestingly enough, we have Davos journeying right now in Dancing in the Wind's Winter to Skagos to steal a child. I think that's mm-hmm. such a cool parallel. Yes, I, it is. Lots of trickster characters. The North welcomed singers, and Bale ate at Lord Stark's very table. He ate his food, he played him songs well. Stark offered him a prize of his choosing, and he chose a Blue Winter Rose. Stark said it would be done, but by morning, the singer had vanished with Lord Brandon's daughter. Her bed was empty, but for the blue rose. John interrupts, asking which Brandon this was, and Egret tells him, Brandon the daughterless! He had no children but her! Shut up! Duh, John! (laughs) I do love that we get this in such close relation, just a few chapters after Danny 4 in Clash, when she is in the House of the Undying, and we get that a blue flower grew from a chink in a wall of ice and filled the air with sweetness. It's a really perfect tie-in to make you remember, oh, this all goes together. Right, and just like in that same chapter, of course, her seeing a man dying with a woman's name on his lips... Proclaiming some random boy, Song of Ice and Fire. 
Yes, although of course that was Aegon. Yep. Or I was mean, it Aegon? <laughs> my God. Everyone searches for the daughter, and everyone fears that the Stark line is at its end. But Lord Stark hears a child's cry in the hour of the wolf one day, and he finds his only daughter in her bed with a baby on her chest. John asks if Bale had brought her back, but Egret's like, no, they never left. They hid in the crypts, which Winterfell brand things happening, whatever. The maid loved Bale so dearly, she bore him a son. The song says, though, if truth be told, all the maids love Bale in them songs he wrote. Be that as it may, what's certain is that Bale left the child in payment for the rose he'd plucked unasked, and that the boy grew to be the next Lord Stark. So there it is. You have Bale's blood in you, same as me. The real North, just like that scene we got in season eight of Game of Thrones, we had that moment that you have the North in you, John, the real North. And that's what this passage and this little story really is all about. It is Egret telling him, you know, you are a Northerner, you are a true Northerner. And it's George's way of showing us who John's mother really is and giving more kind of commentary on that whole song and story and how it relates to John. And John says, it's not a real story. That never happened. But Egret says it's a good song that her mother used to sing it to her and that her mother was a woman too, just like his. It's a good song, John. <laughs> <laughs> the song ends when they find the babe, but there's a darker end to the story. 30 years later, when Bale was king beyond the wall and led the free folk south, it was young Lord Stark who met him at the frozen ford and killed him, for Bale would not harm his own son when they met sword to sword. So the son slew the father instead said John. Aye, she said. But the gods hate kinslayers, even when they kill unknowing. When Lord Stark returned from the battle and his mother saw Bale's head upon his spear, she threw herself out from a tower in her grief. Her son did not outlive her long. One of his lords peeled the skin off him and wore him for a cloak. Your Bale was a liar, he told her, certain now. Yeah, that sounds like a Bolton. I don't know. Right, very Bolton. That's so Bolton. Uh, that's definitely the Boltons. And it's definitely showing what's to come. I mean, we just had the Bolton happen with, we just had it happen with those two Miller's boys. Yeah. Like, that sounds, I don't know. That that checks out to me, John. Yeah, but um, along with that, the structure of the story is interesting, and we're going to obviously get into the the content of it. But before then, um, like, there's a few influences that I feel George is working with here, or, or uh, story traditions that you see echoing in the Bale of the Bard, like in Greek mythology and sure other mythologies too. You have that sort of trickster way, like that a god sneaks its his way into the line of some mortal houses. Like for example, the way Zeus comes to Danae as a golden shower, which I'm like, what is going on in this story? What do we mean by golden shower? Anyway. And then with a new Lord Stark not recognizing his father and slaying him, leading to the grief of his mother, uh, killing herself, right? Uh, you get something a little reminiscent of Oedipus. Now, John isn't going to end up sleeping with his mother because she's just some woman in dead and has never sang him songs because she's dead. But that the song evokes the story of Oedipus has some resonance with John's storyline, with his heritage being very much shrouded from him. And then, of course, incest does still hang over the story. And while it's not his own mother, it's his aunt, it's bringing back that same sort of irony that the play Oedipus is known for. Egret says this line to him, and it comes in with all this idea of stories. And not only are there all these references from different texts like Oedipus, uh, but also from within the story, from all of the different stories that we get 
throughout this series. It comes right after the House of the Undying, and it has major rebellion and Red Wedding parallels even hidden within it. Uh, I love the line Egret gives to him, but a bard's truth is different than yours or mine. Uh, the songs are always different, just like we kind of mentioned that it almost hints at Rhaegar, whether he raped and kidnapped and murdered Lyanna, or whether it was an elopement and romance run away out on the horseback in the countryside to Dorne. Uh, you think about Brandon outside the Red Keep and the Lord Brandon in the story, come out and die, Rhaegar. Uh, the woman throwing herself from the tower not only has Lyanna Stark vibes of being kept in the tower with the baby, but also has Ashara Dane vibes and her quote-unquote suicide, and of course Helena Targaryen and even Catelyn vibes with the morning mother reference we had earlier in the chapter. Hmm. Bolton skinning the lord is literally happening right now in the story, in Theon's plot, right? He's skinning the lords, but it isn't really the little lords of Winterfell, it's not the princes, it is of course the Miller's boys. Uh, and in the end, there's that beautiful idea of the truth being hidden in Winterfell's crypts of Jon's parentage. And it reminds me of Paparotti's piece on Egg's Ring. You can check it out on, you can check that out on our A Song of Ice and Fire, R.A. Swath on Reddit. Uh, she has a piece on Aegon the Unlikely, Aegon the Fifth's ring being the evidence that is hidden in Lyanna's crypt to prove that Jon was a Targaryen. Rhaegar and Bale both have their heart plucking a girl from Winterfell just as Abel goes on to do so in A Dance with Dragons. We even get this idea of the Stark line possibly ending, which is what we're being faced with right now after the War of the Five Kings and Sansa being made a Lannister in the next book. What you're saying about that Bard's truth plays into a larger discussion of the truth of songs like we've discussed before that much of Sansa's storyline is about the disillusionment of realizing that life is not a song and that there aren't any heroes in the way that she was taught, but that doesn't invalidate the truth behind the values that the songs espouse, right? And that people should aspire to be better we're all going to fail, we're human, but we can still try to be better. And there's something of that response to that songs, like those of Bale the Bard or the legends that the reeds tell Bran about the tourney of Harrenhal that's masked in that language of fables. Like there's truth in the emotion. And I think that's what Egret's trying to tell him in saying that there's a bard's truth to this. And of course, the legends and songs, they might get distorted as they're passed down, but they do carry some of that oral history. Yeah, and not only does John represent that taken child idea and theme like Bale the Bard, but John goes on to become the own Bale the Bard and switching children at the wall later on. Yeah. Dawn and Corin Halfhand arrived together. The black stones had turned to gray and the eastern sky had gone indigo when stone snakes spied the rangers below, wending their way upward. Uh, two things just to add here. One, those Arthur Dane is Corrin Halfhand theories all based off of this, and that's so funny to me. We are going to chat about it later and about the thematics that surround those tinfoil theories, but why the thematics that surround them actually work really well. And, you know, the indigo sky, uh, Dawn and Corrin arriving together, it's very interesting language. It's supposed to depict that emotion, probably similar of what you feel about Arthur Dane through Ned's fever dreams. I do love the black stones turning to gray, especially as John goes deeper into the north and his cloak is going to slowly turn to grays when he takes the mm. wildling cloak. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. And of course, that's very much about the lines becoming blurred for John. Like how right now John pulls Egret along with them. And then he plays with Ghost, and Egret's standing here like, what the fuck is going on right now? When he's just 
playing with this dangerous animal. Yeah, her eyes are huge and white, like big old eggs. <laughs> I know, I love that. <laughs> he looks at it, she's just like, mm. I can just She's like, you don't play with them. Like, they're wild fucking animals, John. <laughs> she's like, it's danger. This is dangerous. But that goes a lot with that skin changing idea, right? Like, mm-hmm. John is going to become a skin changer soon enough, and uh, they don't. It's not normal, you know? It happens to only one in how many people? Yeah, and I mean, I'm sure Egret has encountered other skin changers before, right? Because she knows some of that when they get back, but she's just like, "Mm, that's a dire wolf, though. This is wild. What's going on? That bond with that, his bond with his dog is a little different than most people's bonds with their pets. Yes, because they're out here wrestling and being cute and shit. The other rangers, though, all patronize John for keeping Egret as a captive, and John repeats that she yielded. And Corrin takes control of the situation, saying that uh, you're a son of Winterfell and a man of the Night's Watch, and like you know what you gotta do. Yeah, Corrin gives John privacy and a knowing look, and he takes off with the men, and he led them up the steep, twisting trail toward the pale pink glow of the sun, where it broke through a mountain cleft. And before very long, only John and Ghost remained with the wildling girl. I love that. I think it's beautiful. It's just beautiful imagery. <sighs> There's so much good imagery, actually, in the John chapters. There's a lot of nature. Yeah, it's good. And then, of course, we get to the scene where John must now make a choice. He thought Egret might try to run, but she only stood there, waiting, looking at him. You never killed a woman before, did you? When he shook his head, she said, We die the same as men. But you don't need to do it. Mance would take you. I know he would. Their secret ways. Them crows would never catch us. I'm as much a crow as they are, John said. She nodded, resigned. Will you burn me? After? I can't. The smoke might be seen. <sighs> That's so, she shrugged. Well, there's worse places to end up than the belly of a shadow cat. He pulled Longclaw over a shoulder. Aren't you afraid? Last night I was, she admitted. But now... The sun's up. She pushed her hair aside to bare her neck and knelt before him. Strike hard and true, Crow, or I'll come back and haunt you. Longclaw was not so long or heavy a sword as his father's ice, but it was Valyrian steel all the same. He touched the edge of the blade to mark where the blow must fall, and Egret shivered. That's cold, she said. Go on, be quick about it. He raised Longclaw over his head, both hands tight around the grip. One cut, with all my weight behind it. He could give her a quick, clean death, at least. He was his father's son, wasn't he? Wasn't he? Wasn't he? Do it! She urged him after a moment. Bastard, do it! I can't stay brave forever! When the blow did not fall, she turned her head to look at him. John lowered his sword. Go, he muttered. Egret stared. Now, he said, before my wits return. Go! She went. I'm so going to pick some music for behind that, by the way. Okay. That was pretty epic. We did great. (laughs) What a a little passage. That's right there. That's John showing you his character. Mm Mm-hmm. And you get a little bit of Egret's character, too, in the way that she deals with it. She's here. She's facing her death head on. And I 
I love that she's like, I can't be brave forever. And, you know, that she's like, I'm brave now that the sun is up. I can deal with it. She has her own kind of honor. Yeah, she has her own honor system. And it speaks a lot to where his honor system is coming from. It's very much so coming from being Ned's son, quote unquote. And it also leads into those thoughts we get throughout the rest of the books for John, like in John 6 in A Storm of Swords when he leaves her. You were wrong to love her, a voice whispered. You were wrong to leave her, a different voice insisted. And it just rings with that same line. He was his father's son, wasn't he? Wasn't he? I'm just riffing here, but like him thinking he was his father's son, thinking of his family. Part of what made it so difficult for him to kill Egret is that she reminded him of Arya. If he's his father's son, then Stark. This is also like that first round of humanizing the wildlings, you know? Like, they're just people. He looks at Egret and he sees Arya. She's just like his little sister Arya. She's just a person. There's nothing wrong with her. There's nothing criminal with her. She's running from the White Walkers, which they're going to be doing as well. Yeah. And I mean, she and the people who she was with, they were watchers too. They were watchers of their own sort of wall. They've held the North longer than the Night's Watch have. Yeah. They're just trying to look out and protect their people. Are Mm -hmm. they not supposed to guard the realms of their people as well? They're guarding the realms of men, same as they are. And we'll talk about that a little more in the next chapter that we're getting to in a second. Yes, but first, our lightning round, what we missed. The only chapter we missed between John 6 and John 7 is Sansa 4. After meeting with Dantos, who pledges to get her out of the city, Sansa spends some time with Sandor Clegane. She awakens the next morning after having her moon's blood for the very first time. And that takes us to John 7. Corrin learns the type of man that John is in sparing Egret. Squire Dalridge sacrifices his life to keep his brother safe. Oh, what a G. I know. <sighs> He's, He's like, like the Alan of this plot. Oh, he is. Yep. He yep, is. Yep. Oh, Alan. Why would you bring up Alan again? I'm God. Sad. Sorry. <sighs> so they walk the Skirling Pass finally, which is steep and narrow. In single file, Squire Dalbridge leaves, keeping watch, except Ghost, who walks beside John. Sometimes he stops, hearing things. As they reach the highest point that leads to the milk water, Corrin says they'll wait until it's darker. Yes, and finally as everyone is resting, John says, Corrin, yeah, uh, so you never asked me about, um... My date? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, why didn't you ask me about my hot date, Corrin? The one where I'm supposed to kill... Oh, God. Anyways, and then Corrin's like, first of all, I'm not a lord. And then he affirms that Yes, you're right, John. Mance would have taken you. And I've actually heard the songs that Mance used to sing before, you know, about Bail, Bail the Bar, because Mance used to sing them after rangings all the time. We all knew him. His voice was sad. They were friends as well as brothers, John realized, and now they have sworn foes. Mance, according to Corin, loved the wild. He was wildly born. Mance returning to the wild. I don't know. The man- story of Mance in a way reflects that of John and Egret, right? If you come back to that line that Jojen says of if love and hate can mate, like for Mance and Corin, as we were talking about earlier, they were close. They kept each other alive. Like they were really, they had to be physically close. They had to be spiritually and emotionally close if they were going to stand by each other like that. But With Mance and Corrin and the other brothers of the Night's Watch, they've become, then, sworn enemies. And that's why you hear that sort of sadness uh, from Pain and Love when Corrin talks about Mance. This is one direction that that 
love and hate can make can flow. But for John and Egret, it flows the other way. They were sworn foes who then become lovers as they begin to recognize that humanity in one another. And neither, neither way that this goes is any less difficult, right? It's hurtful both ways, realizing the humanity in your enemy and either having to face them or having to part from them, uh, being star-crossed lovers. Yeah, definitely. It's <clears throat> that star-crossed kind of almost Arthurian even, you know, like, mm. tr- saving Guinevere. Uh, it's kind of John's own little Rhaegar and Lyanna love story comes out with John and Egret. Yeah. He was the best of us, said Halfhand, and the worst as well. Only fools like Thor and Smallwood despise the wildlings. They are True. as brave as we are, John, as strong, as quick, as clever, but they have no discipline. They name themselves the Free Folk, and each one thinks himself good as a king and wiser than a maester. Mance was the same. He never learned how to obey. John quietly says, hard same. <laughs> Corrin's like, okay, so you didn't do it. John's like, hey, finger guns, finger guns. <laughs> Corrin's like, alright, <laughs> word. I, what I also like about this quote, right, is that there's respect from Corrin of the wildlings. He understands that they're the same, but that makes the choice more difficult and that makes it weigh a little more that he has to choose himself and his vows over what he sees as their humanity. But it's sad because where Corin finds himself being honorable, he's being honorable to his vows, which stem from, of course, the systemic idea of the Night's Watch, while John, of course, chooses Ned's honor. He's honoring his father and the choices he's making and the Stark name. Ned chooses to hide John away in secret for his family, for blood, for love, uh, where Corrin is honoring the vows he made for the Night's Watch, which is just to defend the realm. John, he's thinking here, but aren't they the realm, too? Mm-hmm. For Corrin especially, looking at how Mance was his brother in that betrayal, you see where this institution both hurt and coddled both of them. The Night's Watch is truly the problem here. Like The problem with the Night's Watch is the Night's Watch. Mance didn't agree with these morals. He found that free folk were just humans and he wanted the freedoms they had. And those freedoms come with harsh conditions like winter and ice zombies. But isn't that what being free is about? Right? Eh? Eh? And that that's why they're coming south, though. They all know it. All of his people have seen and been affected by the White Walkers, by the others. That's why Egret sits there looking into the flames. She's looking in the flames, thinking of these ice zombies that are coming to get them. She's willing to make these fires and give away their position. She's like, oh, it's better than the zombies, y'all. Yeah. Like what you're saying with Mance, like he didn't agree with their morals. He thought that they were just inconsistent and he maybe comes back to that love is the death of honor, right? Even though I still have qualms with that. But he didn't love the wildling woman who sacrificed and gave up her most important worldly possession to fix his cloak, right? But he was just like, how can we not feel something? There's a sentimentality behind his desertion. He's like, this woman gave this incredibly precious thing for me and you would take that away because of what? Your stupid code? It's something very, very small, but at the same time, Mance sees the meaning in it. Mance is like, pass the blunt, strums his lute. It's just (laughs) life and love, bro. It's just life and love. He's like the hippie king. Yeah, until he has to start killing people. Yeah, (laughs) that he's not so peace and love. Yeah. John explains that he followed Ned's example, though, uh, of looking in their eyes and before executing them, and he saw no evil. And Corn's like, uh, yes, this is the same with the two other dudes he killed, too. But John's like, now they don't have a horn, though. It's fine. It's chill. If I had needed her dead, I would have left her with Eben or done the thing. 
myself. Then why did you command it of me? I did not command it. I told you to do what needed to be done, and left you to decide what would be. Corin stood and slid his longsword back into its scabbard. When I want a mountain scaled, I call on stone snake. Should I need to put an arrow through the eye of some foe across a windy battlefield, I summon Squire Dalbridge. Eben can make any man give up his secrets. To lead men, you must know them, Jon Snow. I know more of you now than I did this morning. And if I had slain her, asked Jon, she would be dead, and I would know you better than I had before. But enough talk. You ought to be sleeping. We have leagues to go and dangers to face. You will need your strength. And it's true, Corrin did not command it of John in the last chapter. All Corrin said to him is, then you must do what needs to be done. Corrin half hand said, you are the blood of Winterfell and a man of the Night's Watch. Yeah, and it really ties in with all of these same ideas, like in Bran 1 from Ned, of course, if you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. And of course, just like Egret said last chapter, strike hard and true, or I'll come back and haunt ya. He was his father's son, wasn't he? Wasn't he? All of these quotes just swimming around in his head. Uh, this is this is what haunts John. This is what is part of his choices he has to make. Yeah, he's determining what it means to be a man, and that's his example of what that is, and trying to figure out, can I do that? And what I also love about Corin's line here in this exchange is it's very indicative, in a way, of the writing process itself. Corin knows each of his men, or these different characters, if you will, and what is at the core of them and what they can do. But for writers, a lot of authors, and for the readers, because the readers need to see this, in order to better understand characters, authors have to put them in situations that bring out the core of who they are and show you what choices they will make. I told you to do what needed to be done and left you to decide what that would be. And this is what the author does with his characters. And in learning how the character reacts, so the author now knows more of the character than they did before. And so do all the rest of us. Uh, that's all. Yep. Yep. And then John tries to get some rest by cuddling ghosts, but ghosts ghosts on him to go hunt. <laughs> I'm proud of myself. But sleep comes for John and he dreams of dire wolves. There were five of them when there should have been six, and they were scattered, each apart from the others. He felt a deep ache of emptiness, a sense of incompleteness. The forest was vast and cold, and they were so small, so lost. His brothers were out there somewhere, and his sister, but he had lost their scent. He sat on his haunches and lifted his head to the darkening sky, and his cry echoed through the forest, a long, lonely, mournful sound. As it died away, he pricked up his ears, listening for an answer, but the only sound was the sigh of blowing snow. John? The call came from behind him, softer than a whisper, but strong, too. Can a shout be silent? He turned his head, searching for his brother, for a glimpse of a lean gray shape, moving beneath the trees, but there was nothing, only a weirwood. It seemed to sprout from solid rock, its pale roots twisting up from a myriad of fissures and hairline cracks. The tree was slender compared to other weirwoods he had seen, no more than a sapling, yet it was growing as he watched, its limbs thickening as they reached for the sky. Wary, he circled the smooth white trunk until he came to the face. Red eyes looked at him. Fierce eyes they were, yet glad to see him. The weirwood had his brother's face. Had his brother always had three eyes? Not always, came the silent shout. 
not before the crow. He sniffed at the bark, smelled wolf and tree and boy, but behind that, there were other scents, the rich brown smell of warm earth and the hard gray smell of stone and something else, something terrible. Death, he knew. He was smelling death. He cringed back, his hair bristling and bared his fangs. Don't be afraid. I like it in the dark. No one can see you, but you can see them. But first you have to open your eyes. See? Like this. And the tree reached down and touched him. Okay, you creepy little shit, Bran, first off. <laughs> second off. <laughs> I like it in Let the dark. What the fuck, Bran? Um, but second, oh, what a good passage. There's a lot of emotions wrapped into it, right? Somehow yes. through, like, the dogs. Yeah, absolutely. With Ghost, you know, really communicating most of this for John. Yeah, like that they don't feel whole, that they're missing, that they're all torn apart, yet they are still a pack. They still feel connected to one another. That that ache of emptiness, a sense of incompleteness, as it says. Yeah. So I want to bring up another passage that comes up later in A Clash of Kings. It's, it's I think, the last chapter, right, of the book. Uh, in Bran 7, he remembered who he was all too well. Bran the boy, Bran the broken... Better, Bran the Beastling. Was it any wonder he would sooner dream his summer dreams, his wolf dreams? Here in the chill, damp darkness of the tomb, his third eye had finally opened. He could reach summer whenever he wanted, and once he had even touched Ghost and talked to John. Though maybe he had only dreamed that. He could not understand why Jojen was always trying to pull him back now. Bran used the strength of his arms to squirm into a sitting position. I just wanted to bring that quote up because I think there's something wonky going on here. If you read this John chapter outside the context of the rest of the book, sometimes people kind of forget that this Bran chapter follows many, many chapters after. And so it can seem as though this exchange is definitely Bran from the future. And it might still be, but that Bran also experiences and recalls this dream in this same book muddies it the language is also a little ambiguous like not before the crow could refer to bran's meeting with the crow in his dream in a game of thrones but it could also refer to the meeting with the three-eyed crow later on and his strengthening powers it's very unclear as is bran discussing how much he likes the darkness which smells of death in that same bran seven chapter bran thinks of how much he likes the darkness and how it calls to him and how much he wants to see it and be in it and how he wishes people wouldn't pull him up from it but if it's death i don't, I don't know like he he's obviously in the darkness in dance right they talk about how dark it is beneath the weirwood so i i am not sure i understand what's up and i think we're not supposed to quite yet yeah i think it's ambiguous on purpose because mm-hmm. he obviously wants you to know that was a dream john had haha <coughs> and then all of a sudden bran reveals he had talked to ghosts and talked to john through that dream but then even bran says maybe that was only a dream i think it does happen in the same book especially because that chronology is so strange you know and things are happening at the same time or near the same time as each mm-hmm. other but I think it's also really practical use for this as John shifts into this following wolf dream. Bran mm-hmm. was protecting him just in time when he needed to be protected, right? Because then we get a second part of this dream when John has actually awakened as a wolf. Yes, he does, and we get a lot of uh, that, a lot of the information about the wildlings in Ghost. John overlooks a huge cliff, overlooks a huge cliff, and sees a huge host of men preparing for war, but. This is no army, no more than it is a town. This is a whole people come together. And then off in the distance, as John's looking at all these people massed together, he sees a tusked snuffleupagus. That's not. 
<laughs> That's what it is. It's a snuffleupagus. <sighs> Eliana. With ears and tusks. Oh my god. <laughs> and then a bird, an eagle, I guess, attacks Ghost, and then John wakes, calling Ghost to him. And then he tells the men that once he wakes up, uh, that he was dreaming. Because they're like, why the fuck did you just yell? Are you trying to give away a pers- position? He's like, I saw thousands of wildlings, and I saw giants riding guy. And Corin, though, is like, so he had a wolf dream, and he's like, you gotta tell me everything. And this time, no one laughs. Someone calls John a skin changer, but that's just the stories, right? As they discuss the truth of John's dreams, John begins to worry about his wolf, the one true thing that John cares about, which is his doggo. And the first time I read the books in general, I probably glazed right over this shit. I started the books after season two. I don't remember caring about it. These books are so dense that that whole like tree dream, I was probably like, that's a weird tree dream. Okay, moving on. Like, I wouldn't have connected it, you know, back in the day. So it's amazing that the magic really has come back alive in this book, especially having this come right after Danny 4. Magic is very alive and it's happening with John's third eye open. Yeah, I I also read these books at the same time, around that same time after season two. And I don't remember what I thought of this moment. I think I remembered it a little, but I was like, whatever. Yeah, he's a skin changer. And now people are calling him skin changer. I remember it. Maybe being like, all right, that's happening. Yeah, exactly. I just didn't... Uh, now I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is so big. In the larger context of the books and how we're probably going to get weird time stuff with Bran. But also at the same time, it's within the same book. But Bran can just like awaken things in people. It's interesting. Bran opened his third eye. That's nuts. Which actually, now that I think about it, if the crow was able to do that for Bran in the dream... Does it, is it like Bran going through his old self and having that dream? Do, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, where does that butterfly effect go? Yeah, future Bran goes in, like, through old Bran, forces a dream that opens John's third eye. I don't know. I, I feel like that's a bit too much. It's too deep. Timey wimey shit. Too yeah, too deep. Yeah. Too deep. I'm a Doctor Who fan and you went too deep. Yeah, and I don't even know anything about that show. I'm like, there's a time booth? Oh my god. There's a booth and um, it's like Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So Squire Delbridge points out an eagle circling overhead. They, it seems to be watching them. And they find Ghost and he is deeply injured. Which is the saddest thing. Oh, poor Ghost. I felt it, it's really sad. It's very scary. <laughs> yes, Corrin and the other rangers tend to ghost wounds with John. They hold him down and they pour wine over him because they're like, we gotta take care of the dog! We gotta take care of the dog. We do. Ghost right, rights matter. It's important. Uh, They retreat. The eagle has spotted them, and they're like, we can't do this anymore. And then the party makes its way back up the thin, winding pass in the darkness. This introduction to skin changing is perfectly transitioned in John's plot. The chapter does a really good job of that transition. And that eagle is just background noise. Everything is really meta when the reveal comes that skin changers are actually real, after everyone just doubted it. They're attacking us, actually, and they're also among us. Ghost, the eagle, the magic of the wild north becomes real in this chapter. It's not just sparkling fields of glassy ice. The stories are real. Everything Old Nan said is coming true. Like you were talking about Sansa's fantastical ruminations, John has heard these stories through Nan and Bran, and he and Rob lived them out as well as young boys. They were not little boys when they fought, but knights and mighty heroes. I'm Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, John would call out. And Rob would shout back, well, I'm Florian the Fool. Uh, these are all of the stories coming to life in John's plot, but also coming to life in a much darker way. Absolutely. And I'm just waiting for Snarks and Grumpkins to show up, too. Yes. I think that they would be hilarious, and I really want them. 
We are not far from the place the wildlings died, said Corin. From there, one man could hold a hundred. The right man. He looked at Squire Dalbridge. The squire bowed his head. Leave me as many arrows as you can spare, brothers. He stroked his longbow, and see my Garin has an apple when you're home. He's earned it, poor beastie. He's staying to die, John realized. Corin clasped the squire's forearm with a gloved hand. If the eagle flies down for a look at you... He'll sprout some new feathers. The last John saw of Squire Dalbridge was his back as he clambered up the narrow path to the heights. When dawn broke, John looked up into a cloudless sky and saw a speck moving through the blue. Eben saw it too and cursed, but Corin told him to be quiet. Listen. John held his breath and heard it. Far away and behind them, the call of a hunting horn echoed against the mountains. And now they come said Corin. Now it begins. What? I was thinking, what? 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 Well, we will talk about that in a second, but first... Squire Dalbridge saying, please give an apple to my horse. He's a true cannon man. He's earned it, poor beastie. Yeah, that's that's a good guy right there. If he feeds it his is. horse before he dies. That's honor. That's honor. Like, honor but, is a horse. It really is. Okay. <laughs> oh my god, okay. <laughs> Alright, Chloe. When you look at Mance Raider, he's this figure that's been built up for so long that we don't see him immediately, right? He's a legend beyond the wall. He's a king beyond the wall, a crow-turned-wildling, an oath-breaker. But it comes down to something we hear echoed across the books of all of these institutions. Uh, John is a soldier for the first time. He has to fight a man he doesn't know in the field, sent forward as a man of the Night's Watch to die for the realms of men, but against a fellow man? The systemic institutionalism behind the Night's Watch has dark echoes against its light side, the Kingsguard. They're not so different, despite what we would think with the politics behind them, and with literal ice zombies at the wall. We get that quote in Cattle and Seven in A Clash of Kings right nearby this. Jamie reached for the flagon to refill his cup. So many vows, they make you swear and swear, defend the king, obey the king, keep his secrets, do his bidding, your life for his... But obey your father, love your sister, protect the innocent, defend the weak, respect the gods, obey the laws. It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow or the other. This choice between duty and like Eliana was talking about the death of duty earlier. Uh, there's a reason this quote happens so close to this chapter in A Clash of Kings. And this is alongside men in this book like Sandor Clegane breaking in battle at the Blackwater. And it directly corresponds to what happens in A Feast for Crows, when we get the broken man speech. It's what's to come in our story, and it's in every character's arc. Mance fleeing the watch long ago tells us of the weight that John will start to bear, even at this young age, and even with his failure at killing Egret. It's why, in A Game of Thrones, when John admires Jamie and thinks this is what a king should look like, it might ring truer than he realizes, just like the thoughts of, am I like my father? Something that also echoes throughout the rest of the story for John who is more like his father than he knows. We get that line in Brienne 5, The knights come down on them, faceless men clad in all steel, and the iron thunder of their charge seems to fill the world, and the man breaks. Everything happening in A Clash of Kings directly ends up in a feast for crows, showing just kind of this aftermath of war and what it makes of men. Yes, I, I love everything that you're bringing up here, and what you're saying about the man breaks, because in a way, that's kind of what happens in John's storyline, 
through one way or another. And I love the parallels that you're drawing between him and Jamie, who also struggles to live up to the songs that he was taught growing up. And what you say of, is this what a king should look like? And we know that in the 93 letter, Jamie was supposed to become a king, but obviously his storyline went in a different way. But there are a lot of parallels between them in failing to keep up those vows, right? Like, just as Jamie is, John becomes an oathbreaker. He probably is going to be a kingslayer of a sword, queenslayer. Um, so there's a lot of ways that their um, characters come together. And I also like what you're saying about Mance and how he's built up to be a legend. You know, he becomes a legend later on. He becomes a man. Later on, he goes and crafts himself into a song once more to save Jane, Jane Arya, Arya Jane. His very own Bale the Bard, Abel the Bard. Mm-hmm. And, and so like he, like John and Jamie, tries to live up to some sort of heroism that's in the songs as well both you know breaking their oaths for their family family duty and honor Mm -hmm. that uh once for blood for gold for love i feel like that really fills in in a lot of places here another interesting concept that's come up that i've been talking about really lightly is that people make tinfoil theories about mance's rhaegar kw dent looking at you and about corin being (laughs) arthur in disguise that he survived and goes north and goes to the wall and ned you know let them do that while the theories don't really hold plausibility in the story, in my opinion. Same. Hard same as John. There's no time for that. There's just no time for that. <laughs> but the thematic resonance is really what makes those theories hold any weight, in my opinion. There's all these lines that really compare Corin to Arthur Dane in the story. So why does Corin sound so grave after such a victory from John 5 in this book? There's Jamie's fever dream in a storm of swords. We all swore oaths said Sir Arthur Dane so sadly. And in John 5, we can only die. Why else do we don these black cloaks but to die in defense of the realm? Arthur Dane is Corin Halfhand in only the way that Corin is John's Arthur Dane. We find this later when Corin asks John to kill him. Their faces burn clear even now. Sir Arthur Dane, the sword of the morning, had a sad smile on his lips. And that's from Ned's Fever Dream in A Game of Thrones. And then you have... The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn, forged from the heart of a fallen star. They called him the Sword of the Morning, and he would have killed me, but for Howland Reed. Father had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished he had asked him what he meant. And of course, looking forward to A Storm of Swords, John 1, we have John thinking of Corrin after he has been made to kill him to desert to the wildlings. I will, thought John. I will see and hear and learn. Wait, wait, wait. This isn't your John voice. I'm making you do it again. (laughs) I will, thought John. I will see and hear and learn, and when I have, I will carry the word back to the wall. The wildlings had taken him for an oathbreaker, but in his heart, he was still a man of the Night's Watch, doing the last duty that Corrin Halfhand had laid on him before I killed him. Arthur dies for Lyanna Stark's baby, right? For John, for keeping the secret. We don't know the exact circumstances, but we know it is exactly, for the most part, that. And John also has to kill Corin for the good of the people, for the good of their people, for the realms of men, for saving the realms of men. Corin and Arthur both have these huge, huge arcs of self-sacrifice. Ned killing Arthur is tied up in a moment where, of course, he sees Lyanna, and he also loses a lot of the illusions of war being romantic 
it's killing that heroism in those songs and those legends. And that's what, as you're saying, it, it is for John and Corin. But in Arthur doing this and Corin, and then of course it starts here with Squire Dalbridge laying his life down for the watch. You get a lot of that idea of self-sacrifice in a story that is dealing with that idea of sacrifice in general. And I think that there's something very specific and important, the distinction between self-sacrifice versus sacrificing others. Because you see people like Tywin, people like Stannis saying, what is the life of one boy? What is the life of 12 men against the lives of thousands? But in doing so, in choosing to sacrifice someone else, you're kind of removing the agency of the other person and you yourself aren't necessarily always paying the price. But Squire Dalbridge steps up here. He does his duty and does it himself. Arthur does it for his vows, whether he he was right to do so or not. And Corin also recognizes this is a thing that must be done and I will do what it takes for our people. Ned killing Arthur. Arthur has to die if Ned is to go back to Robert. Ned can't face the Kingsguard. Ned can't face these men, these legends, without killing them for Robert to accept his desertion, just like how John can't join the Wildlings without killing Corrin Halfhand. Killing Arthur Dane and killing Corrin Halfhand are what allows them to come back. For John, it was Corrin told me to kill him, and for Ned, it's probably the same thing, that Arthur Dane told Ned that he has to kill him. Yeah, and I mean, let's be real. The person who should really be doing any sort of atoning here was Robert, accepting the deaths of children, which is the reason why he and Ned were fighting. But um, I think that's an interesting idea, especially with the Dane so shrouded in mystery. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of this language between Corn and John reflects that similar sort of relationship. And I do think that's what George wants us to look out for. I don't think he wants us to think Corin is Arthur, but I think he wants us to see that while John is so lost in trying to become his father. He literally is his father along the way. He is Ned Stark. Uh, he's facing all of these same choices where Ned seems like this super honorable guy and everyone thinks, oh, good old honorable Ned. Only Ned knows these horrible traumas that he's had to endure and this horrible stuff he's had to do to be this honorable man who does the right thing. And beneath the surface, it's really just all these lies that he has to live with. Yeah, and I think that uh, Mary's... Mary's essay draws a lot of those comparisons between those lies and the different kinds of honor yeah. between Ned and John and very well. The plot culmination really leads to that, you know, saving the children. Yep. Wow. Well. That was a that was a fucking episode. Whew, I need to like I don't even smoke cigarettes and I need a cigarette. <laughs> uh, it's a fire to keep the whites away. Yeah, for sure. To keep the others. Yeah. Three blasts. They would totally do that, right? I guess if they, yeah, if they smoked. some sour leaf. Yeah, but it's not the same, you know. No, it's not. It's not. It's not the sour diesel leaf. Uh, <laughs> that was an episode. I'm like, I feel like exhausted. I, I just feel yeah. like that episode hit me like brag bag of bricks. Those two chapters are very good. Uh, they aren't mm -hmm. that long, believe it or not. I was reading them and I was like, I feel like yeah. I thought this was longer, but there's so much packed into it, so much density. Yeah, I also was like, oh, this went by really fast. All <laughs> right, but. This episode did not, yeah. Because as you said, lots of discuss, lot lots of discussion. Ugh. As John's story ramps up, yeah, I, I'm really glad that we're enjoying these chapters like this. I uh, I didn't think we wouldn't, but I was worried maybe they'd be bland, maybe they'd be vanilla. But I think there's a there's a lot that ties into John. I mean, he is one of the most crucial characters in this story, and this was a great chapter that showed us Bran as well for a little bit there. So I'm happy about that. Yeah. 
as you said, John's one of the central characters, and therefore a lot of the central themes of the story, right? And its arguments are within John's chapters. Yeah, they flow through him. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening this week. Next week will be episode 56. We will have John, the uh, finale of A Clash of Kings with John. We will have John 8 in our outro discussing the book. And we are excited to cruise on into A Storm of Swords, where uh, it just hits the fan. It's going to be wild. I can't wait. It's going to be wildlings. It'll, it's going to be wildlings. Hey, I heard you like the wildlings. Um, <laughs> you guys can find us on social media. If you want to tweet with us, DM us, uh, send us memes, send us fan art. Eliana loves the fan art. You can I do. get that. You like the fan art. I do like that. <laughs> Eliana likes iTunes reviews and fan art. I am a much humbler girl. Gone canon. Uh, you can find us at Girls Gone Canon on Twitter, twitter.com slash Girls Gone Canon. Or you can even send us an email, chat with us at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course, keep up with whatever we're doing. Be sure to subscribe to us on Google Play, on iTunes, on Stitcher, Acast, Spotify, or on Podbean, where all these are hosted. Yes, the place that you listen to your podcasts. We are there. And, of course, if you haven't checked out our Patreon, you got a few bucks you want to throw at us, go on over there. We have tons of perks. We're actually talking about reformatting some of those perks with our new series that we're going to be covering, additionally to A Song of Ice and Fire, his dark materials. Uh, And we do have a new stretch goal on Patreon that once we hit this stretch goal, $2,000 a month, we will be doing a feast for Feast of Crows. Uh, We will be (laughs) making recipes together live in the flesh on a YouTube live stream while we talk about why A Feast for Crows is our favorite book. Recipes will be from the companion Feast of Ice and Fire cookbook. (laughs) So we're excited. We're picking recipes. We're, uh, We're getting hyped in advance. Yes, lots of feast things happening within this. It's it's like the Game of Thrones board Game of Thrones, but a feast for Feast of Crows. Yeah. And, hey, make sure you guys check out Nauticast coming up in the next weeks. Uh, Eliana, our very own other host, will be host? on Nauticast. She'll be covering a Daenerys chapter. Eliana, do you want to talk about what chapter that is? Yeah, so I will be reprising... As a guest on Nauticast, uh, I was there a few months ago. Wow, like no, a year ago, over a year ago now, uh, for to talk about Daenerys two and her storyline there. And I will be coming back to talk about Daenerys once more in Daenerys nine of a Game of Thrones. A lot of what we'll be discussing is builds a little off of that essay that we talked about earlier that I wrote. And um, yeah, I'm very excited to join. Join our good friends, the Amen Brothers. The Amen Brothers and the Hallelujah Sisters. I love it. Yes. Yeah, I haven't. Uh, I'm excited. They're very close. They're like four episodes away. I think at the time of this, they'll be four episodes away from Clash of Kings. So finally, they'll get to cover some yeah. stuff. We've covered a ton of stuff. And I don't know. They're just they're still on a Game of Thrones. They're, I think they're <laughs> excited of not just covering some stuff. They're excited, clearly, to get to Stannis. Yeah, they're just... What? Them? What? You think they're going to talk about Stannis in A Clash of Kings? I don't think they are. Oh, man. I think they're going to just, they just have to skip the prologue, you know? I've got five silver stags on it. (laughs) Oh, a stag, eh? Are they on fire? Are these fiery silver stags? Oh, my God. It's a a heart aflame, if you will. Uh, As always, I have been (laughs) one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. You're literally the only other host, Eliana. No, there's Allie. (laughs) Have a great Stop erasing day, night, evening. <laughs>